Guys, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. As you're finding your seat, hopefully you received a note card and a piece of paper when you came in. If you didn't, wave your hand and Tom has got some. He can hook you up. So grab your note card and, and that piece of paper. And I want to have you just write, jot down an answer to a couple of questions. These are the questions. First of all, what situations in your life have made you feel like an outsider? And you can define that however you want and think as broadly as you want. What, what situations in life have made you feel like an outsider? And then maybe on the flip side, in, in what situations have you treat, treated other people like an outsider? The first one is the main one I'm worried about, but the second one you might also. Right, so just, just jot those down and, and hang on to those um, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about them a little bit later. In, in this Lent, we've been looking at this idea that we all sort of live with this thing I'm calling just a working model of reality, like our mental picture of reality. And, and it involves everything we can see or imagine or describe and sort of the rules that govern reality, like natural laws, even human laws. And it tells us kind of what can exist, what can't exist, what's possible and impossible, what's thinkable, what's imaginable. And it gives us this illusion that reality is pretty stable and that we have a, a good handle on it. And our whole life is kind of organized to defend our working model of reality. And the problem is there's our working model of reality and then there's reality and they're not the same thing. And most of the time we can ignore the difference, but sometimes we bump into things that are clearly real, but are not part of our working model of reality. And when that happens, this, this gap appears in our model, kind of a blank spot, just like a black hole that registers to us really as like a disturbance, almost just like a fuzziness. And it's like something happens and, and you find yourself saying things like, what just happened? And you really cannot put it into words. Or you think, am I, am I going crazy? Like, do I even know what's real anymore? In fact, the real is the name philosophers give to this, which is kind of confusing because the real is not reality. It's actually what defies reality, defies our working model of reality. So this is things like trauma, betrayal, new birth, sudden death, or great joy, or love, or suffering great beauty. Something happens to us, and, and we, we can't ignore it, but we also can't explain it, really. And so it's kind of, um, it, it registers to us as a disturbance within our working model of reality. It's uncanny. It's like a ghost in the room. And these encounters with the real can really threaten our idea that, that reality is stable, and we start wondering, you know, what other gaps are out there in the world? And, and often this causes our working model of reality to disintegrate. There's this um, philosopher. He's um, total, total, like, depressing atheist, but he's really smart. His name is um, Jean-Paul Sartre, who described a particular kind of disturbance. Um, he noticed that humans have this powerful aversion to things that are sticky. Like, have you ever 
had something stuck to the bottom of your shoe and it clicks every time you lift your foot and like drives you crazy. You literally have to stop whatever you're doing and take, get it taken care of right away. Like you can't rest. You could have a pebble in your shoe or something bothering in the bottom of your shoe for days. It's not a problem. But if something sticky is on your shoe, you like address it right away. Because we have this aversion. Like I have pulled my car over to the side of the road before because I had something sticky on my shoe that was sticking to the brake pedal and it was making me crazy. I had to go rub it in the dirt to make it stop. And Sartre noticed this and asked, why does, why does this, this sticky thing bother us so much? Like gum on your shoe or sweaty legs sticking to the leather seat of your car on a hot summer day or pine sap. Have you ever had pine on your fingers? It's nasty. Like there's nothing you can do, like just rub some dirt on it. That's about, that's about what you can do. Or do the Christmas vacation thing, you know what I'm talking about with him. I'm not the only one. There are some who remember the, the sticking to things, yeah. Or the mother of all, like uh, sticky misadventures, the toddler eating pancakes. Are you familiar with this one? And the rest of the day, you just find these sticky patches all over your body. Like how did, how did it get there? Like I, I almost, I wanted to bring some, like a plate with syrup and have us just put one little drop of syrup on our fingers to feel that stickiness. But if I did, you wouldn't hear a word I said for the rest of the time until you could wash it off, right? And that's what Sartre was, was looking at. We have this powerful disdain for things that are sticky. His famous example was like sticking, dipping your fingers in a glass of water versus with honey. With, with water, it slides right off, it dries, no problem. With honey, it clings to me, right, and won't let go. And then it begins sticking to everything else it comes in contact with, and it's kind of out of my control. And Sartre said that, that mostly unconsciously, the problem with stickiness is that it makes us feel as if the boundary of the self is being violated. It gives us the, this uncanny sense that we might actually be more permeable than we thought, that things in our environment impact us more than, than our working model of reality has accounted for. So we have an aversion to stickiness, all humans do, because it threatens the boundary of the self and makes it feel sort of out of our control. He said, this is why children, for instance, don't really mind stickiness. Their identity is still forming. They're experimenting and trying on all kinds of things. Adults, though, are highly conscious of the boundary of the self and defensive about stickiness. And, and, and it seems to mess with that in some way. So stickiness for us is perceived almost like a kind of defilement. They, sticky things like change our form and function. They challenge our boundaries, like they're trying to control us or something, like a, a parasite. And we like nice, tight boundaries. Nothing sticky, nothing clingy, nothing too messy, especially not messing with our autonomy or, or freedom. In our relationships, we experience certain kinds of other people as sticky. So it's like someone following you around at a party or a close talker. You got a friend who's like a close talker? It's always like clingy in your face or an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend who clings to us, or a helicopter parent, or that neighbor who always snags you and traps you in a really long conversation, and you have to like sneak to the mailbox and sneak back so you don't get stuck. Sartre would often use slime as an example of stickiness, and he, he noticed that we call people slimy when we don't like what they're made of, 
and, and relating to them seems to leave a residue, call them slimy or clingy, if they stick to us and threaten our autonomy or freedoms. Stickiness is part of the language we use about our relationships. And in fact, all relationships have kind of a stickiness to them. When we peel away from some significant relationship, it leaves a residue on our lives. Stickiness can even happen with regard to our entire like working model of reality. There's, there's one example. It's kind of weird, but I think it works. Has it ever um, happened to you where like the wrong person takes your side in an argument? You know what I mean? And it's like, sorry, mine are only guys. That's all I can think of as men. There's someone that you don't think of as like uh, sharing your working model of reality. It's someone you might maybe even despise when they take your point of view. It feels kind of sticky, like you're attached to them now. You're like, I don't like this. I don't want to be attached to somebody or have my working model of reality kind of with that residue. It makes it feel tainted and, and defiled a little bit. And so as a defense against this, we, we try to harden the self. That's what we do. That's what starts it. Make the self impenetrable. In fact, maturity in Western culture is largely about moving kind of from the soft pliability of childhood to a more hardened adulthood, increasing our levels of impenetrability. So we move from flesh to kind of wood to stone to iron, or for some people, Teflon, right? Nothing sticks. So maturity is actually viewed as this movement towards strength and purity and impenetrability, a rigid boundary of the self. I know who I am, and I have my working model of reality, and, and these things are more defended and less likely to change the older we get. So just keep this idea in your mind as we talk about our text for today. The story we read just a minute ago about the Samaritan woman at the well. Because in, in this narrative, Jesus is messing with the boundaries of his people. Culturally, ethnically, religiously, relationally, even sexually. He's embracing the stickiness of this Samaritan woman. And he's not just like letting it happen. He wants it to happen. He's gone out of his way to make it happen. We're told in the very beginning, Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem back up to Galilee. And there's this detail that says, but he had to go through Samaria, which is really odd because he didn't have to go through Samaria. The, in fact, the two main roads from Jerusalem to Galilee um, that, they, that were the safest and most traveled, they both went around Samaria. And the reason for this is because culturally, Jewish men did not associate with Samaritans ever. And so they did not travel through Samaria in, in, at any time. Culturally and geographically, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. If he had to, it must have been for a theological reason. He's teaching something. You know, Israelites and Samaritans had, had a serious beef that was centuries old. Went all the way back to when, when Solomon, after King Solomon died, David's son, they had a, a big family fight and split into two kingdoms. There was the tribe of Judah made up the, the southern kingdom. Their capital was Jerusalem. Their temple was on Mount Zion. 
And then the kingdom of Israel was the other 10 tribes, because the Levites didn't have land, and they formed the northern kingdom, and their capital was Samaria, and their temple was on Mount Gerizim. And the northern kingdom actually was more powerful and successful and prosperous. They, they were a major player alongside like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, but they were vulnerable geographically. And so when the, the Assyrian Empire came and attacked in 722 BC, they were in trouble. And they, the, the northern kingdom, they asked this, the south, Judah, for help, but Judah refused. And so the north was decimated. Everyone was essentially killed or um, enslaved. And after that, they were actually called the lost ten, the ten lost tribes of, of Israel. And so there was bad blood between north and south. The southern kingdom survived for a while, but then Babylon came along and they were sacked and carried off into exile, most of them. But in the meantime, the, the, the northern kingdom, the Jews that were left, the Samaritan Jews up north, um, they began to worship alongside these Assyrians who had settled their land. And, and so, so the, the Judaism of these Samaritan Jews up north and the Judaism of the, the Judean Jews um, down south and off in exile, it kind of evolved separately. That's what happened. The main difference was Samaritan Jews didn't have, um, they only had the Torah. So they didn't have like the prophets, the histories, the writings. Those things were produced in the south during and after the exile. And the, the, as, as the southern kind of Judean Jews kept changing and adapting their tradition over time. And so a couple centuries go by. The Judean Jews have been in exile. They're allowed to return. And, and they come back and they find these, they have start having contact with these Samaritan Jews, these ten lost tribes up, up north, these strange religious practices. And they were kind of Jewish, but with different rituals and teachings. So these Judean Jews down south, they just rejected the Samaritan Jews. They called them half-breeds, said their worship was illegitimate. And so they continued these two peoples to be bitter enemies, and they just never missed a chance to wound each other. One time, the Samaritans let the Greeks use their land to attack the south. This is not cool to do. And the southern Jews retaliated by destroying the Samaritan temple. Also not cool. And Samaritans then responded by desecrating the Jerusalem temple um, during Passover, so nobody was able to observe Passover that year. This, this is just what they did. It was, it was just kind of immature as they built more and more rigid boundaries between the two people. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, he was offending his own religion by setting foot in Samaria. He was blatantly violating their settled religious boundaries by going through this forbidden land. We're told that after, um, after sending his disciples into town for food, he goes to Jacob's well and sits down. And we're told this detail, it's at midday. And there's a Samaritan woman there. Jesus asks her for a drink of water. One of the daily tasks of women in the ancient world was to carry water for the family. They would do this first thing in the morning and then in the evening to avoid the heat. And they always came as a group for reasons of safety and just propriety. And so the fact that this woman is there alone and in the middle of the day is odd. 
And she's either an outcast or she's up to something. Plus, early readers would be on alert anyway, because back then, wells like this, water wells like this, were sort of like the single bo- singles bars of the day. Like, this is where one of the few places in society where um, men could initiate contact with women without their parents or, or, around and try to hook up. I mean, think Isaac and Rebecca met at a well, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah. This is, this is where that kind of thing happened. Maybe that's why she's there. Maybe she was just avoiding kind of the, the gossip and dirty looks and whispers of the other women because of her situation. Either way, she's there at an odd hour and all alone. This is not normal. And, and so she's right to be sort of puzzled when Jesus spoke to her. Like what he should have done was move 20 feet away from her at least and wait for her to leave. That was the custom. Instead, he spoke directly to her. And this is another thing that simply wasn't done. Men did not even make eye contact with women they didn't know in public places. It wasn't done. Much less speak to them. Like a rabbi, especially, would not generally even speak to their own wife in public. And so Jesus, I mean, he just initiates this conversation with a woman, which, by the way, is kind of a pattern for him. He included women among his followers. They traveled with him, financed him. They were leaders in in his movement. Jesus had no use for kind of cultural taboos around women. And so comes to this well. He just looks at this woman and asks her for help. He needed some water. Jacob's well actually um, still exists to this day, has anybody been there? Anybody been to Jacob's Well? It's like in the West Bank, right? It's, it's still there. The, they built like a, a little shrine around it. The real thing would have um, had this massive capstone because, you know, they dug it by hand. So they would cover it with this massive, like 20 inch or 20 inches thick rock with a hole in it. Short wall around the hole to keep the dirt and the, the kids from falling in. That's probably where Jesus was sitting. And in these wells, there would be, it's not like the American version of wells, there would be no community bucket on the end of the string. You, you never wanted to share, share a, a bucket with someone you didn't know where they'd been. They might be unclean, and this would defile you. So everyone carried their own leather bucket rolled up. They'd unroll it and prop it open with sticks. And so Jesus didn't have a bucket. It's probably in town with his guys, Right? And so by asking her for a drink, he's offering to share her bucket. This is where the kind of stickiness of the day comes into play. A Jewish male would never share a cup or a bucket with a Samaritan, especially a woman. Her uncleanness would be sticky, would contaminate him. It's a threat to his identity as a Jewish male. Right? And, and so to ask for help was to initiate fellowship with a sticky outsider. And so she kind of reacts like, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? There's a lot of identities flying around just in that one little sentence. She first names him as a Jewish male and contrasts with her identity, a Samaritan woman. He's like, what are you doing asking me for water? He comes back to her, kind of, it's kind of funny what he says. He's like, if you were smart, you'd ask for the real thing. I have living water. And she goes, you don't even have a bucket. Like, 
are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? She's kind of taking a pot shot at his identity here. And he says, I'm telling you, you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. And it's almost like she responds in, with this moment of vulnerability. She kind of mumbles something that essentially is like, I could go for that. I wouldn't have to come to this stupid well alone in the middle of the day. Jesus seems to kind of take notice that she's weary. And he goes, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He's like, I figured. You've been married, what, five times? And the guy you're with now wouldn't even marry you, would he? In their culture, you have to remember, a, a woman who has had five husbands literally would have been considered curse. It's unbelievable bad luck. Either she was divorced for like trivial matters, um, usually for being barren, you just get chucked to the side, or she was widowed maybe more than once. Either way, Jesus doesn't seem to be put off by or bothered by this. He never condemns her in this story. Besides, the conversation isn't really about her past. It's about his identity. That's at the heart of this whole story, his identity. So she takes another stab at it. She says, I see that you are a prophet, which always makes me laugh. So she's getting warmer. And then she asks him about, you know, the elephant in the room, the century-old conflict between the Jews, the Judean Jews and the Samaritans. She says, our ancestors worship right here. Ours and yours. Now you guys say Jerusalem is the only legitimate temple. What's up with that? And Jesus says this. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I studied this a lot. I don't actually think Jesus is being elitist here. He's mostly saying, look, a lot more has happened since you guys last heard from God. And a dramatic change is now coming, and in fact has already begun, and it's begun in these Judean Jews down south. And she's like, I know. She gets what he's saying. She's like, I know. Messiah is coming. He'll set things straight. And then Jesus says, like, that, it's a record scratch line. He says, I am the one you're talking to. Says I am. Like, as in I am Messiah. But also, as I am is in the name that God uses to name God's self. This is the first I am statement in the Gospel of John. There are seven. He does this on purpose. It's identifying Christ as the very presence of God in the world. It's actually God who is crossing these boundaries in the story. Then his disciples show up. They do a little number about food. We kind of left that part out. But meanwhile, this woman goes home and tells all her friends about Jesus and keeps returning with other people from her town. She's gotten really sticky these Samaritans are kind of clingy with Jesus. In fact, they were told they, they want him to stick around and teach him for a while. It says, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed. He stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his 
word, his speaking, his message. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. And this last phrase is, is really kind of the culmination of all these attempts to name Jesus and his identity. And in Greek, it's, it's not actually the word world. It's not like earth. It, the, the word is cosmos. It means all of creation, like as widely and comprehensively as you could define it. So there's been this progression in the way Jesus is identified or named in this story. First, he's Jewish male, right? Shouldn't be talking to her. Then who do you think you are? Jacob, you know, some great father of Israel. Then I see that you are a prophet, like you have insight from God. And then, then finally this I am, which is a name God uses for God's self, like Moses at the burning bush, when he's like, who, who do I tell people you are? And the Lord just says, tell them I am. And so finally then, we have this culmination, the last naming. It says, we know this is, by the way, it's named, it's spoken by the sticky outsiders, not the Jewish insiders. His guys have shown up now. They say, we know this is truly the savior of the cosmos. The, not just the working model of reality, reality. Everyone and everything comprehensively. So what we see in the story is this cosmic redeemer has been named and is transgressing religious boundaries. Really, even more than that, just boundaries between religions and peoples and races and nationalities and genders and sexual histories. In and through Christ, God is just scrambling every working model of reality. God is not the special possession of any people. Not simply a Jew, a founding father, a prophet, a Messiah, but God in human flesh in the heart of Samaria, having this deep con conversation with this Samaritan woman, revealing that all peoples, cosmically, all things are being redeemed through Christ, who is this presence of God. And so any working model of reality that says God's mission of redemption is only like, say, for people who worship on Mount Gerizim in Samaria or Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's too small. It's outdated. It's wrong. It will have to change. God recognizes no limitations. Christ is the Savior of the cosmos without um, limitation. And so now um, everybody has to adjust their model. I mean, how this works out, we don't really know. How other religions or whatever are being saved through Christ, we, we don't really, that's all, a whole other story. But from this story, what we learn is he's the savior specifically of the cosmos. And because of what Jesus has done here, his actions in the story, it, it, in a sense, for his people, he's the savior of everyone that all the religious folks would we're tempted to despise. I mean, there's a reason he takes, he does this whole thing in Samaria, that it's with a woman at a well. 
There's a reason that she has like a scandalous marital past. She's part of a repugnant ethnic religious group, a despised nationality, right? I mean, very clearly approaching a Samaritan woman, um, Christ is moving against sort of the stickiness issues of his own people, the people of God. And he's engineered this on purpose. He had to do it because symbolically he's, he's teaching something. He's moving against things like nationalism, racial and ethnic divides, religious divisions and exclusivity, like the fights over God and who possesses God, against patriarchy, the denigration of women, even against like sexual bigotry and judgmentalism. He sets up this whole encounter intentionally so he can just scandal, scandalously welcome the sticky person who should have defiled him but doesn't. And so then the culmination of the story is this whole sticky Samaritan clan starts coming out of the woodwork and they get in on God's cosmic redemption. I mean, it's, it, it's offensive. Early readers, it, it would have been offensive to them. It would be like in our day, Jesus heading to the Islamic center of Johnson County or a refugee center where Syrians or Ukrainians are here. Or going to like a, a MAGA rally or a Me Too or Black Lives Matter or a gay pride ra rally. He would just show up there, right? Any, anybody that our religious boundary keeping has put on the outside. And then just lingering with those outsiders for days until they get the hint that God loves them. Just told them God counts you as children. Forget your religious identity and nationality, your, your political identity, your, where your ancestors worshipped, how you name yourselves, your sexuality and gender. Those things don't matter if God is redeeming the whole cosmos comprehensively. This is how Christ is named. Everybody sticks to Jesus. And this seems to be the way he wants it. All who are willing to Worship God, it says, in spirit and truth, which is really just, I mean, you know the, the Paul scripture um, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual form of worship. It just means live, live in, in, in a particular way. Live as if our whole lives are an act of worship to God. Even all the crazy lives that we're contempted or that we uh, are tempted to condemn that don't make sense to us. That's Jesus. I mean, just, he heads straight for the sticky people that we're tempted to judge and condemn and avoid because we don't condone their way of life or they feel like a threat to our autonomy, our freedom, our you know, working model of reality, all the relationships we've peeled away with because they seem contaminated and we feel unclean by association. Or anybody, that if we would let them stick to us and count them as insiders, would kind of scramble our working model of reality and we'd have to like, rethink our identity as children of God who Jesus heads straight for to include them 
and to challenge us because Christ is Lord of the cosmos. Crossing every boundary, transgressing every taboo, challenging us to follow him to those we see as sticky or clingy or threats to our identity as insiders because they're outsiders. Christ comes to them in friendship and then asks us to do the same. Because there's really something about the kingdom of God that his people and we by extension could only learn through fellowship with sticky people we're tempted to despise. C.S. Lewis actually, he wrote about this some and would talk about it a lot in his lectures um, that in their most immature stages, all religions do this. They divide the world into insiders and outsiders and then try to avoid the sticky people. He said that on the surface, these traditions really can seem quite far apart, like there's a lot of distance between them. And, And then on top of that, we build boundaries and barriers between us to sort of separate ourselves, our traditions from one another. And Lewis said that on the surface, that's all just a sign of immaturity. But then he said, for those who dig deep down into their own tradition, mining it for all of its wisdom and its depths, seeking maturity and wholeness and peace to worship God in spirit and truth in their own kind of weird way. What Lewis said is, what you find is the deeper you go in your own tradition, you actually start to find more in common with those from other traditions who have also left the surface and dug deep in their own tradition. You find more in common with them than you do with people on your own tradition who stayed up there on the surface. Does that ring true to anybody? Anybody experienced that? I think this is the essence of what Christ is modeling and teaching with the Samaritan woman at the well. All the ways we divided from each other and built boundaries. Those things are passing away. They're not part of cosmic redemption. Those things are going away. Where all this is headed is toward God's redemption of all things cosmically, somehow through Christ, who is God's presence with us. You could actually really plot any kind of identity into this, into C.S. Lewis's little deal here. Gender, sexuality, race, nationality, religion, political identities, religious identities, social issues. If Christ is the cosmic redeemer, and we don't even really know how that happens. We know our story, but we don't know how it's going to happen. What we do know is that Jesus taught the more deeply we seek first the kingdom of God, the more it will lead us toward peace with all kinds of outsiders. And so we just have to learn to trust Christ to pursue life the way he did and not worry so much about who's in and who's out and how Christ will accomplish this cosmic redemption because Christ's presence is for everyone and the only way to miss out on it is to deny it to our enemies and make God exclusive and in the end like it's only those who are unable to allow other unworthy people to share in God's presence 
who are themselves unable to receive it. Those, those two statements, they unravel. They just unravel so much of our religious identities. If we took those things seriously, they would, they would knock a massive hole in our working models of reality. Jesus goes out of his way into Samaria, straight up to a shunned woman, initiating fellowship with this sticky outsider, leading her to a confession of her struggles, offering her living water and love and grace, the presence of I am, the presence of God. And this transformed her into a full participant in the cosmic redemption. And by the way, she didn't stop being a Samaritan or stop being a woman. She just received what was flowing from Christ without limitation. This invitation to worship God in spirit and truth, which really just means saying yes to God with our weird little lives in whatever identity we've been raised organically. Not in a merely religious sense, like with a genuine human spirit as persons and members of whatever community we find ourselves in. God's presence is for anyone, everyone, and it's not exclusive. And those who refuse to allow other unworthy people to share in God's presence, they end up unable to receive it themselves. And grab your card that, that you wrote on. And this, this is really the stickiness thing where it comes around. Like, who is it who's made you feel like an outsider? And who is it who you've made feel like an outsider? What situations do that to us, polarize us? And if you think about it, as Christians now, 2,000 years after this story happened, um, if you think about our identity as, as Christians kind of versus everyone else in the world who's there's like Christian and then everything else, right? What this story teaches us is that our disposition toward those others is not against them but for them that's our disposition for them that's why we exist for them even our worship what we're doing here we worship for the rest of the world I, I, this often happens to me like before the service, like I, I come in early and right and then as it gets busy around here I jump in my car and I go and I practice some and I I drive around the neighborhoods and pray and try to calm myself down. And, and often, I, part of what I do, I don't even know how it happened. I did not do this on purpose, but I just started to pray. I would drive up and down the streets, especially this neighborhood, and I pray a blessing on the people of the neighborhood. And I, I like in my mind, what I'm saying to them is, like, I'm going to church now, and I'm going for you. Like, I'm bringing you with me. And we're going to go do the work of worship and we're going to keep this story alive in the world of how Christ has come for us and is redeeming everything, no limitations. And we don't even really know how. But I pray this blessing, and I say, I say we're, we're going to come to this place, we're going to eat this bread and drink this cup and tell this story, and we're going to try to be made of the stuff Christ is made of, and then we're going to be the presence of God. We'll meet you at the well, like wherever that is. 
That's why we worship. It's not like just for us. It's for the life of the world. Because this is what Christ is after. Let's pray. Oh God, it is such a challenge to us. You know, we, we're so weird as human beings and we get so kind of twitchy about sticky things. And it feels a little sacrilegious, of course, to think about Christ just redeeming everything and that we don't get to say what or how. But we trust that this teaching is important. That it mattered enough to Jesus that he went all the way up to Samaria to sit down at the well with this woman. We confess that we, we don't really know how to do this well, but that we want to be part of your mission of redemption to the world. So make us your hands and your feet. Help us to be brave to cross boundaries and be the presence of Christ at the, at the well in, in our neighborhood, in our work, our friendships, our families. Amen. Will you stand now? And we're going to receive communion. The reason we do this is kind of where we ended in this story. We, Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, shared this common meal with his followers. And he said, symbolically, like, the bread is like my body, the, the cup is like my blood. Blood meant life to them. And he said, just every time you gather, take my life into your life. Be made of the stuff I'm made of. And then go out into the world and be my hands and feet. He said, every time you gather, do this. And so that's why we do it. And it's also why we set no limitations on who can come join us at the table. And um, the way we do it, we we'll just the ushers will release us row by row. We have a new extra row here because we're trying to not take up too much time. And um, you'll be released row by row. You can come forward. They'll offer you a piece of bread in the cup, and they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or um, say I remember or I will remember or however you feel comfortable. Um, will you join me in praying a blessing, though, first? Lord, we do ask your blessing upon this this bread and this cup, may it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?